Well, good morning, church family. I encourage you, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, chapter, turn to chapter 62 for now. Uh, if you're new to us, for the last five, excuse me, for the last four Sundays, we have been walking our way through an overview of the book of Isaiah. Today we will conclude our overview series by looking at the last chapters of the book. We'll be looking at chapters 56 through 66 is kind of the section in which we're looking at today. We'll be starting in chapter 62 uh, as we begin our time together. And so, as I said, today ends this five-week overview. We started off with Isaiah in chapter 1 looking at a city in ruins, and today we will finish this book, this overview, with a vision of a restored glorious heavenly city. In many ways, the story of Judah is symbolic of our story. And so with that in mind, let's consider Isaiah chapter 62. I want to read all 12 verses. Isaiah chapter 62. This is what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah. For Zion's sake... I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no, be, no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through and go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes, behold, his reward is with him. And they, they shall be called the holy people the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And while Isaiah is a massive book, a book of prophecy, a book of promise, a book of warning, warning of judgment, Lord, we know that it's also a book of hope and restoration. So Father, as we give our time this morning to these final chapters of this overview series, Lord, would you help us to see what you're doing? And would you ground our hope 
in all that you are and all that you've promised. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Waiting is hard. Think about the number of hours, days, probably weeks, who knows how long we spend our life waiting. Whether it's waiting at all of the red lights on 235 that never seem to be green, whether it's waiting on a kid to finally make their way to the car after a practice or waiting at the doctor's office. Waiting is something that we all endure and sometimes we're waiting with anticipation. And sometimes we're waiting with anxiousness. But we all wait. Waiting is something that we endure and it can be hard. These final chapters of Isaiah, some scholars say, could be titled Characteristics of a Waiting People. As Isaiah, as Isaiah in these final chapters seems to look well into the future to a time not only when Judah would return from exile and be restored, but a time beyond when the suffering servant would come and accomplish his redemptive work, and then even a time beyond that when he would come again for a second time as the conquering king and set up this new heavenly city. This book, if you're simply just reading through it, it, it can be hard to navigate. It can be hard to get your bearings, wondering, okay, what, what's he talking about now? And where, where, where is he, who's he addressing now? And, and how is this being played out then? And what does it mean for the future? As we've seen, it's not necessarily so neatly divided, but we can, we can somewhat divide the book into three sections. The first 39 chapters was addressed really to sinful Jerusalem and, and really Judah, that southern kingdom, as they were continuing to live in rebellion and in evil and rebellion against God. And so you see throughout the first 39 chapters of Isaiah these strong and urgent warnings of coming judgment because of their rebellion against God. But all through there, we know, as we saw, not only is there warning, not only is there judgment, there is also glimmers of hope, of restoration, promises that are made. And then in chapters 40 through 55, we see really these words of comfort, these beautiful chapters, poetically put together to encourage a generation that would be living out its existence in exile. We know that God had warned in these first 39 chapters that because of their disobedience, if they would not repent, they would be taken captive, and indeed they were, into Babylon. And so chapters 40 through 55 was a word spoken, a word of comfort spoken to the people of God living out their lives in exile to remind them that God would in fact have a remnant and that God would indeed restore his people. And now today we come to chapters 56 through 66 and God continues to reassure his people. And you find in these chapters both reassurance and further warning. Whether it was written to a people still in exile or whether it was written to a people who had now returned to exile, we know that in these final chapters, God continues to instruct and to inform his people and call them to obedience to him as they live out their lives in hope of what God would bring in the future. So throughout this book of prophecy, throughout this massive book, we've seen all of this take place. And right at the center of it all, 
are these references and promises made of a coming redeemer, a coming deliverer, this promised son we saw in chapters 7 and 9. In chapters 49 through 54, this one who would be the suffering servant who would bear the iniquities of his people. And now as we look further into this passage today, we see the one who is, we could say, a conquering king who would come and put a final end to all injustice and all sin and bring about his kingdom forevermore. At the centerpiece of this book, we know that it is the Messiah that is being put forward as our word of promise, and he would come in two ways, in two comings, we could say, his coming as the son, as the suffering servant, and then yet a second time as this conquering king. And so as we wade into these final chapters, as we consider what the Lord has to say through Isaiah, these words of further warning and instruction, but words of reassurance and hope, we're going to see how the Lord calls us to live today in light of these promised, in light of this promised coming. It would have been a word for Judah as they anticipated both comings of Jesus. One in the suffering servant as he would come the first time and live his life, a life of righteousness and then die on the cross and be raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And yet he's promised to come a second time. And that's where we live today. We live in between those two comings. And so this word for us as it extends all the way to the end is a word for us today, a word of hope, a word of assurance to encourage us to live out our lives in faithful obedience to the Lord and to live out our lives looking forward to the future with confident assurance that God will indeed return as this conquering king. Really, we could summarize it all by saying this. That what we find here in Isaiah, especially in these final chapters, is that the Lord, the Lord is worth the wait. He is worth the wait. And what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at these final chapters, and I'm going to give you ten promises as to why he is worth the wait. Ten promises concerning his return that should give us confidence and hope. So yes, there's ten points, but they will go relatively fast, I promise. Let's dive in and look at these together. Why can we live out life waiting for this conquering king in confident hope, confident assurance? First of all, we see that he will come, and when he comes, he will come with this wide embrace. He will come with a wide embrace. If you look now at chapter 56, we'll go back to this final section, to the beginning of this final section. In chapter 56, you see the Lord speaking to his people, and here in verses 1 and 2, we see this. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So here Isaiah is, is looking again well into the future and he's calling his people. The Lord is calling his people to faithfulness and obedience. Keep justice, do righteousness. Why? For soon my salvation will come. As you wait for that day, you be faithful to me. This is what he's calling. They're commanded here to live as those who reflect the character of God by recognizing that their daily rhythms were to be in line with God's standard and God's character. 
Notice the language of Sabbath that you'll find throughout this text is a reference to their covenant relationship with God and how they were to live out their lives. Used here not to say that God's people were to cease from all activity on a particular day, but to cease from evil. Again, to reflect this righteous character of their God. But notice... Notice how God command, God's commands here extend beyond Judah. Notice verse 2 says, blessed is the man. Well, who's included in that? If you keep reading, let me pick up in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in, him, give in my house, I'll give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I would give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them, a joy, make, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will, gather, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Notice that as the Lord continues to speak and call his people to obedience and faithfulness in light of the covenant promises, in light of all that God has done, he's calling them to this faithfulness to reflect his character, and he's saying, blessed are those who do this, and guess what? Those who do this are not simply those found in Judah. These are people who will extend to the ends of the earth. These will include the eunuchs. These will include the foreigners. No one is excluded from being among the people of God either by their ancestry in the foreigner's case or by some physical defect in the eunuch's case. Verse 8, that promise there, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You see God's wide embrace, his, his inclusive embrace that goes beyond the people of God in Judah and extends to the ends of the earth and he's going to gather them to himself. God has set his saving purposes on all who would turn to him in faith. We read about that in the New Testament very clearly in John chapter 1 verse 11 and 12. We read that he came to his own, speaking of Jesus, he came to his own but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All who would receive him in faith, he gives the right to become children of God. Back here in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, he again affirms this, for my house shall be a house of prayer for who? All peoples. All peoples. God's embrace is a wide embrace. And if this is how wide God's embrace is, then it must mean our embrace is as wide. I think it's a word for us, a reminder to us by implication here for sure. 
that as we go about our daily routines and rhythms as individuals and as a corporate fellowship, that we are mindful of the embrace that God will have for the world. And so then we look at our community and we see everyone, no matter their background, no matter their color, no matter their age, no matter their employment, no matter their gender, no matter their social status, and we see them as all people who God will gladly welcome if they would look to him in faith. It means our eyes need to be laser focused on peoples of all backgrounds. It means that we are able to, to understand God's plan for the world is to be a God of all nations. And that we are to be a people who embrace this glorious vision. That we are be a, to be a people who invest in our community to reach all peoples and to go to the ends of the earth to see that all tribes, tongues, nations, and languages are brought in through the gospel and made part of this glorious global fellowship. He will come with this wide embrace and this is good news as we wait because we know that this is going to be good news not only for us but for, for all. Reminds us that we have work to do. Number two, not only will he come with a wide embrace, he will come to bring comfort. And you see that in chapter 57. He will come to bring comfort. Pick up in verse 14. Again, he's warning here of continued idolatry, that the fact that sin still lingers among God's people. But in verse 14, he writes, And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I've seen his ways. I've seen his ways, but look what he says. But I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You see this promise, one of the reasons that we know as the people of God that it is that the coming of Christ is, is worth the wait is because when he comes, he will bring comfort to his people. In chapter 57, he is contrasting here the reality of what we saw in, or what you do see in chapter 56. In chapter 56, he is painting this, this picture, especially in the first eight verses, of, of the ideal state in which the people of God would live in. And now he looks in chapter 57 and sees ongoing sin, ongoing idolatry, ongoing unrighteousness in their midst. And then he says, despite all of this, despite the fact that I'm even angry towards their sin, that I will punish them for their sin, he says, but I will heal him. I will be a God of mercy. Who does God comfort? In verse 15, he says it. Second part there, he says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him 
who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This God who dwells in high and holy places is the one who also dwells among those who are lowly and contrite in heart. Friends, I know that we are taught early on that the way to success and prosperity and true happiness is that way of upward mobility, more and more and more and more. And certainly there's nothing wrong with working hard and being successful. However, if we are to be blessed of God, we must understand that the pathway to being blessed and, and, and affirmed by the Lord is the pathway of humility. We understand that we are a lowly people, deserving of nothing from God, and yet he's gracious. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 4, in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That means certainly God will be a comfort to those who mourn in this life, but goes beyond that to helping us understand there that that means truly seeing ourselves for who and what we are before God. When we see God in his holiness and righteousness and faithfulness and glory, and we understand that we are far from that, we begin to mourn the condition in which we live, mourning over our sin, mourning over our brokenness, and crying out to him in faith. For those who do that, they will be comforted. Brothers and sisters, we are by nature a people who are restless, a people who are never satisfied, a people never content, a people never grateful, a people never relaxed. We are often anxious and troubled in spirit. Why is that? It's often the result of thinking more highly than ourselves than we ought. And God is saying that he is here to give comfort if we would humble ourselves before him. He says, I will give you rest if you will understand who I am and all that you are. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. God is a God who has promised comfort for his people. We live in a world of turmoil. We live in a, in a world of inner turmoil at times and if we would understand all that God is and all that he's promised and cry out to faith in him, clinging to him as our hope, Mourning our sin, grieving all that we have become, and putting our hope in him, he has promised us that while we may not have maximum comfort in this life, he is going to give us a comfort that will last forever. He is coming to comfort his people. This beautiful language that you see in here, here even in Isaiah, this beautiful language of, I have disciplined them, I am angry for their sin, yet, but I will heal him. This is the promise of God. He will bring us comfort. The third reason that he is worth the wait is that he will come to satisfy us. He will come to satisfy us. In chapter 58, the Lord continues to confront the self-righteousness of the people. In this case, he is confronting self-righteous fasting, religious observance, that the people would have engaged in him for multiple reasons, good reasons to be fasting. But here, he calls out their fasting because it's a means of self-righteous promotion. Look at verse 3. It's as if the people are speaking to the Lord, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Just the audacity to ask the Lord these questions. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, 
You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is, the, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Notice he's calling out, really there you see it in verse 3, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure. They were only fasting for their own, for their own well-being, for their own self-righteous reasons, for their own internal gratification. You see, their problem was that they sought religious ritual for their own benefit and pleasure. That's a whole other sermon series, isn't it? Their religion, their religion was actually the very thing keeping them from the blessings of God. See, living our lives as the people of God is not merely about keeping rigorous religious practice. And yet, what do we often see today? What are we often tempted towards, even in our own walk? Yes, there is this true element of personal, internal act, relationship with God. There, there is this personal element to our faith. But friends, our faith is not that which is merely to remain private or internal. There is both, or not both, there is a private element, a corporate element, and even a social expression of our faith that we see later on in this, ta in this text. Notice what he goes on to say. Verse 6 is not this the fast that I choose, the Lord speaking, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is, not, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call on the Lord and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the, the, desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And then notice what he says. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. He is saying, he is confronting their, their self-righteous religion and saying the only reason you're fasting is to make yourself look good or to make yourself feel good before God. That's not the kind of fast I desire. The kind of fast I desire is, is a life that is given to me in devotion. Internally, personally, yes, in worship, but also in the way that you care for the needs of others. The way that you meet people's needs in, in the church and outside of the church. John Perkins, a great civil rights activist and author, writes of the bigness of the Bible, how it takes the whole person, both an individual's personal actions and social actions, and presents them as faithfulness. The Bible presents the essence of Christianity in a holistic manner, a life devoted in humble service to the Lord and, and to others. What are the two great commandments? To love God, to love your neighbor. These are the things that we see time and time again in the scripture. And when you are giving your life out to, to love God in worship and devotion to him, internally, personally, yes, 
But then you're giving that same response as you worship God to love your neighbor, to care for the needs of those around you. You are exemplifying the character of God and you're being given over to a life of faithfulness and obedience. And when we give ourselves to this kind of life, it is only then that we will be satisfied. You see the irony here, don't you? Here the people were fasting, depriving themselves of food in a way to make themselves look good before God or before others. And yet, as they gave themselves to this empty ritualistic fasting, the Lord says, that's not something I'm willing to see and satisfy. The Lord says, I'm here to satisfy and feed you with good things. And I satisfy those who look to me, who love me, and who worship me, and who love and serve others. God will come and satisfy his people. And we know that as we live out our lives in this, this day and time, as we live out lives of faithfulness and devotion to him, that God is faithful to satisfy our desires. And there's coming a day, friends, where there's coming a day when God will return, when the Lord Jesus will return and make all things new, and you will be satisfied forever. There will never be a day when you lack. There will never be a day when you have some struggle with, with what you're experiencing in eternity because you will be perfectly and eternally satisfied in the Lord. The reason he's worth the wait is that he will come to satisfy us. He, he satisfies us now. But he's coming on that great day to satisfy us forever. And he satisfies those who love him and love others. Number four. Fourth reason that he is worth the wait is that he will come as the divine warrior. Look at chapter 59. Chapter 59. One of the realities that we see over and over again in the book of Isaiah, really the whole book of all, all of the scripture, we can just look in the mirror and see it in our own lives, is is you continue to see Judah's relapse into sin, don't you? Sometimes this is described broadly as unrighteousness or injustice. Sometimes it's specific as he narrows down particular things as we see here. Look at verse 14, chapter 59, verse 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. So there's kind of the broad categories. And then he gets specific. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and righteousness upheld him. See, moral absolutes in this case were gone. Public morality was collapsing. Justice was turned back, truth was lacking, and the, they were reaping the fruit of that. And while these things were certainly true in Judah, certainly no less true of us in our day, we see and experience this on the daily. But here's the thing. Not only do we see and experience this, the Lord sees it. The Lord sees it. And not only does he see it, he has promised to do something about it. If you go on to verse 17, this is what the Lord is going to do in light of the, the lack of truth, the lack of justice, the lack of righteousness that he sees. The Lord is going to respond on this great day. And he says in verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, 
so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the close coastlands he will render, render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. So you see that God will respond in his righteousness to bring salvation. He will respond zealously in vengeance. All of these things are going to, to happen. He will repay his enemies, we're told in verse 18. So there's this day that's coming when this divine warrior will come and he will bring full justice to bear. But not only do we see that here, God does come as this divine warrior to justly deal with all that's gone wrong. But there's also hope in this same chapter. There is hope here because of what we see in verse 20 and 21, Isaiah 59. So he's coming in vengeance to repay his enemies. But look at verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Friends, this is just another image of the gospel, isn't it? God is coming to judge and to condemn those who remain in rebellion against him, who forsake his ways and pursue their own thing in this world. He's coming in justice to deal with that, but yet he's coming with hope as a great redeemer for those who would turn from their transgressions and put their hope in him. He will come as this divine warrior, and that will mean bad news for those who stand in opposition to God, but for those who have, re, who have mourned their sin, who have humbled themselves before him and embraced his, his promises, there will be great hope and redemption. Number five, fifth reason. He will come with lasting light. You see it in chapter 60. Arise, shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see, God has not, as we read through all this, this language of judgment, and it's a heavy read, Isaiah is, but he's not abandoned the world with, without hope. His plan, verse 2, will be carried out. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Isaiah lived in a day of darkness and as he looked to the future, he continued to see this day of darkness, particularly this thick darkness of unbelief and rebellion. But as he also looked to the future, he saw that there would be a light that would come and penetrate the darkness as we see here in these verses. We know that when you get to the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself there in, in John, doesn't he? He, he? he refers to himself as the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me shall not walk in darkness. He's the light of the world. And so certainly Isaiah, as Isaiah looks forward to this dark future, he sees hope because he also sees the light that will invade the world. And not only that, not only that, 
we see not only is Jesus the light of the world, but his light will also rest upon his people. Also in the New Testament, he says regarding his people, you are the light of the world. Sometimes Christians can be the most pessimistic, sad people, and it's a sad indictment. We look around us and we just say, woe is me, all is going bad. It's just, ah. We just kind of mope around as if the world is going down and we're going down with it. But brothers and sisters, listen. Isaiah reminds us that though the world be dark, there is a light that has shone brightly in this world. And his name is Jesus. And not only has Jesus come into this world to dispel the darkness, he has come to put his light upon you. And so every Christian you see walking this planet and every gathered congregation, every church, are these glimmers of light that magnify the truth of the gospel to a lost and dying world. So be encouraged. Every Christian you run into, whether in this fellowship or elsewhere, be encouraged that the light of the gospel is doing its work. Be encouraged that God's promises are being fulfilled. You are a light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You, the church, the people of God, he will come with this lasting light. And so all of this is just a prelude of what is to come. All of this is a prelude of what is to come because we know that there's coming a day when the light will shine and there will be no more darkness ever. We see that in Revelation 21 as we look to, towards the heavenly picture of this great and glorious eternal light. So he's worth the wait because this lasting light will come. There will be a day when there will be no more darkness. Be encouraged. Number six, and I will move fast. He will come in transforming power. Chapter 61. Chapter 61. We read in the first four verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall rise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of so many generations. Now these words from Isaiah 61 are, are familiar words to us. Because we know in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus reads this very text, or at least the beginning of it. He reads Isaiah 61 through the first half of verse 2. He says, when he, after he says, I've come to, or excuse me, to proclaim the Lord's favor, he closes the scroll and sits down and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He stops just shy of that day of vengeance there we see in verse 2. Because he knew his ministry, at least at that point, would be a ministry not of vengeance, but a ministry of proclamation and transformation. As he comes to proclaim this good news, notice how Isaiah describes the work of this coming anointed one. Comes to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the opening of the prison to those bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those in Mount Zion a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. And notice the language there. To give them this instead of that. Beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Oil of gladness instead of mourning. 
garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. God is doing this transformative work to this promised son, the suffering servant, and the conquering king as he comes. He will provide this redemption which results in transformation for his people. He would come to provide the people something very different than what they knew. And not only that, if you keep reading this chapter, he would take this ruined people, this hopeless, downtrodden people, and he would give them a new hope. He would give them a new name. They would be called Oaks of Righteousness, and they would continue there. They would give themselves to the building up of something new. They would receive these blessings from the Lord and rebuild what was devastated. They would be set apart to serve the Lord. Look at verse 7. Instead of your shame, thus you be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Everlasting joy. God is coming through Jesus Christ again. He came the first time to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to make these promises in the gospel and to secure these promises through his death and resurrection. And he's coming again to give us all of these wonderful things. He would add, or he would and he did come to help those who are in trouble and bondage, those whose hearts are broken, those who are downtrodden and captive by sin. He comes to rescue and to relieve us from the impact and burden of sin. And so his mission is a liberating, transformative one that brings all who would trust in him a new life entirely. Number seven, seventh reason he's worth the wait is he will come and give us a new name. I read this text earlier to you, chapter 62. God here demonstrates just how much he loves and blesses the ungodly. Friends, as you, as you read through Isaiah, it's a train wreck of disobedience and rebellion, and evil, and sin, and God will hold them accountable for it all. And yet, as we work our way through this, we know that God in his grace continues to have a remnant. He continues to have a people in which the blessings that he's promised all the way back will come to fruition. And as we look through Isaiah and we see how God's plan for his people unfolds, it's through, it's through chapters 40 through 55 how much God cares for his people and how that's centered on the redemptive work that would come through the working of the Son, the Messiah. And one of the things that we see here is that for those who are recipients of that work, that redemptive work that this Messiah would accomplish, not only would they enjoy a new place in the kingdom of God, they would be given new names. So brothers and sisters, if you, sounds redundant, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, as Christians, as Christians, this text ought to greatly encourage you today. This passage. The reality is this, that every single follower of Jesus Christ enjoys this fact, that God himself, the holy creator, sovereign of the universe, delights in you. God delights in you. You get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you're not so delighted. You get out there in your families and your relationships at work or your friends at school or wherever you go and not everybody delights in you. And you can come up with reason after reason after reason of why you're not so delightful. And you'd be right. Because I can come up with those very same reasons for me. 
And yet we see here that this God of justice is also a God of grace. Verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called. My delight is in her, and your land married. And then if you could turn over to chapter, or excuse me, verse 12. They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Not only that, in verse 5, so shall your God rejoice over you. Brothers and sisters, you are no longer defined by your past failures. You are not defined by your brokenness, your sin. You are defined as a child of God, as God's delight in whom he rejoices over. And let that be something that you are clinging to because you're going to have every reason in this world to be discouraged, to be downcast. But friend, you are God's delight. He delights in you. It's his church in whom he delights. And Isaiah is looking ahead to this day when all nations would run towards Christ through his church. And in his church, we're told that it's his people that he rejoices over. He rejoices over you. God rejoices over you. And what reason have you given him to rejoice over you? I can't think of a one. And yet, because he's gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, Faithful to his promise, he delights in you, despite you. That is good news. Number eight, he will come to execute justice. In chapter 63, you see all of this language of crimsoned garments and red apparel. This is not an Alabama fan. You won't find those in the Bible. Notice he's referring to those who come from Eden, or Edom. Who is this that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Friends, this is just reminder, language that the Lord, that there's coming a day when God will pour out his vengeance and his wrath upon all evildoers. And while the Lord does promise to bring reward to Zion, remember chapter 62, for Zion's sake I am doing this, there will also be a day of vengeance. Here is this reference to Edom and Basra. Basra is the capital of Edom, and Edom was a long-standing enemy of God's people. They hated Israel. And here we see this, this vision of God pouring out his wrath and his judgment upon those who would oppose him and his people once and for all. It's, it's important language that we continue to hear and balance with, with promises of hope and redemption because there's coming a day when all evildoers, all who have not put their faith and hope in God and his promises fulfilled through Jesus Christ, all will be recipients of this judgment from the very hand of God himself. 
So friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're not following Jesus Christ, let this be a warning for you. Let this be a warning and a reminder that there's coming a day when all who are outside of Christ will experience the full justice of God's vengeance for their sin. There will come a day when this will happen. He will come to execute his full justice for God's people, that, that's another reason that he's worth the wait is because we know there's coming a day, even though we work for, for good in this world now, there's coming a day when God will set all rights and he will bring his full justice to bear upon the world. Number nine, he will come as father and craftsman. You see it in chapter 64, verse eight. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter, we are all the work of your hands. Here we see this imagery of a father to a child or a potter to the clay. Here's the reality. None of us would be where we are today, nor would have the people of God of this day been where they were, the remnant, were it not for this, final, or for, for this fact that God, in his fatherly care and his crafty work, cares for us. We are his workmanship. When he comes, we can rest assured that on that great day, he will finish what he started. And number 10, when he comes, he will come to make all things new. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. The young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of the tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring and the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they will call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. There's coming a day. There's coming a day when God will create a new heavens and a new earth and it will be a place of endless gladness and endless joy. In this place will be nothing to distract you, nothing to disappoint you, nothing to discourage or distress you. All that will be gone forever. There's no more depression, no more anxiety, no more fear, no more worry, no more sadness, no more cancer, no more pandemics, no more addictions, no more suffering, no more sin. In that place, in this new city, this new and lasting city, we will find all, all that is joyful and all that is eternal because God is faithful to his promise. He promised this son to be born of a virgin. He promised that this suffering servant would come and bear the iniquities of his people. And he's promised that the conquering king would come and return to bring judgment to the ungodly, but everlasting joy to those who would believe. Chapter 66, verse 18, we see this beautiful picture as we wrap up this book. This, this image of this glorious reality that God continues to unpack for I know their works, 
Chapter 66, verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, to Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal, to Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters, on mules, dromedaries, it's a camel, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. The message of Isaiah is a message of conversion. It begins with the city in ruins. A city that lived out its life in rebellion against God. A picture, really, of you and me. And it shows the devastating nature of sin and what will result, and yet it holds out hope that for those who see their sin for what it is before a holy God and depend upon Him in faith and His promises, who see the glory of God and depend upon His promises, that they, that they would receive everlasting joy. That this conquering King would come again and make all things new. But now we wait. We wait in between his first coming and now his second coming with this solid assurance that just as he came the first time, he will certainly come again the second, just as he's promised. The writer of Hebrews says it well in chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Brothers and sisters, are you eagerly waiting for that day? He's worth the wait. So let's wait patiently, let's wait confidently, and let's wait actively for the Lord to come. Because he will. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful for this word that you have given us through the prophet Isaiah to warn us, to inform us, and to hold out hope. Father, we're thankful that you are a God of justice and a God who is righteous and who will not overlook sin and disobedience. But God, you are also a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of faithfulness to your covenant promises. Lord, we thank you that you are these things and more. And throughout this book of Isaiah, we've been reminded that you will judge sin, but you will hold out hope of restoration and redemption for those who would look to your Redeemer. So, Father, would you establish us in that hope? Would you give us confidence as we wait, as we wait for our conquering King? We pray this in his name. Amen.